Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Brothers, good to have you back again this week. I, I see you're going with the ball cap look today for those who uh, aren't watching the YouTube video. <laughs> I'll take it off at some point, but I guess this is showing my dispensational roots. <laughs> oh, oh, we got a dispy on the show. Okay. One of yeah. us is not a dispy, obviously, but uh, that, <laughs> that's okay. Um, we, we have uh, other important topics to talk about today because dispies yeah. and non-dispies who uh, are mature can get along just fine. So anyway, yeah. um, w- with that, uh, with that frauding there, uh, we want to continue. We started kind of a series where uh, we're talking about the gifts of the spirit. And um, actually, I don't remember what started this uh, now, but um, last week we talked about prophecy and prophets. Uh, previously to that, we talked about uh, apostles and, um, kind of charismatic yeah. doctrines and just the dangers of that in the church. Um, this is an interesting area because even in um, more kind of reform circles, you can find uh, some different views on tongues. You don't always see it act out, but I have definitely found small pockets of sort of secret tongue speakers uh, kind of in mm. our circles in the church. And so um, in this episode, really just kind of want to make uh, the biblical case uh, for what tongues were in Scripture, um, mostly because I think if we understand what the gift uh, always was, then it really eliminates pretty much everything we see today. Um, and then we'll just kind of uh, jump in from there. So, you know, the gift of tongues, um, I, I, most people are familiar uh, with that scene in the book of Acts. And actually, I just want to start with that uh, from Acts chapter yep. two and read that, uh, because this is where we have um, not not only the Holy Spirit falling on people with the gift of tongues, but then we actually get the biblical explanation, which tends to get overlooked as well. So uh, Acts chapter two says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were astounded and marveling, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. 
And they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking were saying they are full of new wine. Incredible passage. And I think um, when we look at this, one of the most, I I think, I was going to say frustrating, but honestly, in my mind, it, it's really infuriating. Um twisting of the gift of tongues today is that it minimizes, belittles, and in a lot of ways mocks the true gift of tongues that we see in Scripture. Um, let's just break this down. Give us a little bit of uh, history, Eki. So um, why were all of these different people even gathered together in the first place? Kind of what's the the context here? Yeah, well, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples um, had uh, met with Jesus Christ, and Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 7 and 8, he said, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, that's in response to their question, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the part of the earth. So essentially, they were in Jerusalem awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. That would be their their cue from Jesus Christ, and, and really a fulfillment of the promise given to them as revealed in the book of John, John chapters 14 through 16, when Jesus said, I'm going to send you another helper, and he's going to guide you in all truth. So this is really just helping to crystallize them when that was going to start. Essentially, Jesus Christ had to ascend up to the Father first, and then he would send his Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's exactly how the prophecies played out, and that's exactly what he revealed in the gospel according to John. So he ascends up into heaven, and then shortly after, we have Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit arrives, and that's when these things start to happen. Yeah, and so you've got all these all these. Um people here who were born in all these different areas. And you don't get any more clear in scripture than what the gift of tongues was. Um, yeah. I, I mean, he makes it evident. He names the various places. And it is interesting. I've heard a couple times now, I, I don't know how prominent this is. Um, some people saying it wasn't the gift of speaking in tongues, but the gift of hearing, uh, which is weird. And they pulled this passage yeah. saying, uh, that they were hearing them speak in their own languages. Well, he's he's astonished um, because these are men who uh, aren't who are Galileans who don't speak their language. So the gift is obviously speaking, but then we're it we're told very clearly um, that what they're speaking is all these foreign languages, right? And so yeah, you can't right. get um, from the text anything other than that the gift of tongues is the, uh, the 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 gift to speak in a tongue that you hadn't previously known or, or learned. And, you know, and it's interesting. In, when I was in the charismatic church a long time ago, they would go down to verse 13 and they would say, uh, but look at verse 13. It, it says others were mocking, saying they were full of new wine. And that's because it sounded like they were babbling and they, they didn't know the language. Well, no kidding. Um because everyone there would not have known every single language that was named and being spoken. So certainly um, also there, you know, it would have sounded like, you know, gibberish. If you don't 
know German and you're listening to German, it, it's it's it, you don't know what you're listening to. And so right, obviously right. there was some of that going on. So a very simple explanation. I mean, he lists here. Yeah. You know, go go ahead, comment on that. Right, and and we've got, and as you're mentioning, we've got Jews from all kinds of different areas. They are gathered together for the day of Pentecost. This would have been one of those occasions where you have Jews coming together, and this is God's grace and timing as well that He chose this to be the day that the Holy Spirit would come down, so that they would all witness this, but also so that the this this speaking in tongues would be uh, would be witnessed by. A number of different people from different areas as as a symbol and as a sign that God is truly working through them. And and this kind of idea, and you you touched on it, but this idea that the gift of tongues was really the gift of hearing, well, chapter two, verse four kind of puts that to bed. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. So you you can't make that mean anything else. Yes, of course, you by the time you get down to um verse uh what is it? Verse eleven. They're saying, "How is it that we hear them hear them in our own tongues?" Well, of course, if they're speaking with other tongues, that's exactly what they're hearing. But the gift was in the speaking, and in the speaking, yes, people from those areas were amazed that they were actually hearing uh, their tongues being spoken. Uh, but yeah, so that that's the full context. Everyone's coming together. Um, this was a very providential and, and sovereign act of God to choose this day with a number of people from all different parts. Of the world, Peter would go on to preach and and reference Joel chapter two as a fulfillment. Uh, but yeah, this is all happening right here. This is the start of the church on the day of Pentecost, and they know that this is truly an act of God from that gift of tongues. Even though some are saying that no, this is um, you know they're just full of sweet wine. But them being full of sweet wine does not explain people being able to speak those kinds of languages. And even the example that you gave when. You know, if I was to listen to someone speak German, I, I'd spend some time in Germany, but I really don't know the language. But German has a very distinct sound from Japanese, which I worked there for over a year, has a very distinct sound from Thai, which my parents are from Thailand, very distinct sound from other languages. So even though it sounds like kind of gibberish to us, it's still very distinguishable. Um, but certainly what we see here cannot be explained simply by being drunk. Yeah, absolutely. And and so we have and, and this is this is the most detailed account that we have in scripture about tongues. And so I think it's clear from here. Um and and then you know one thing is as scripture goes on, you kind of start seeing any emphasis on these gifts. I either Paul's downplaying them and he's saying, "Look, um th this isn't what we need to focus on." I'd, I'd rather speak a few words with my mind, intelligible, understandable, yeah, right. you know, than, you know, many words in tongues. And then eventually you just don't see it in the text anymore at all as you go throughout scripture. And and I think, it, you know, again, you would get to the Hebrews passage we've referenced many times. And, it, you know, you just see that God, by his own design, chose to operate in the church in unique ways at various times. Um, you know, you go to the Old Testament. And you have prophets and miracles, um, you know, prophets calling fire down from heaven, burning up, you know, false prophets. Uh, you move into the time period where God just decides he's not going to talk to his people at all, right? W whatever period was that, 400 years, I think, or 500 years, um, God doesn't talk to his people at all. They, they have nothing, total silence. Um, yeah. If you lived in that time period, that would have been unique. That would have been different. 
Um, and then, of course, you move into the New Testament, and God does something um, different differently than he's done in previous times. And so it's not putting God in a box to say that these gifts no longer operate. It's just very simply recognizing that all throughout Scripture, God has used different ways to communicate with his people at different times. And we just want to be faithful to the text and ask, how does God communicate with us today? Um, which, of course, we would understand that uh, there's a completed canon. And so God communicates to us normatively through the text of Scripture. That's not to say God can't do miracles. You know, we've talked about that before. But a miracle, yeah. by definition, is something extraordinarily rare. Um, and, and so, again, the gift of tongues um, was the unique, um, special you know, blessing of God, a gift to be able to speak a language you never learned before. Now, I want to bring something else here, too, because the text even tells us what kinds of things they were speaking. You get down to verse 11, and he says that we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And so the focus of the gift of tongues was on what God was doing. We aren't told exactly what those deeds were, but we are told that the focus was on God. And if we just kind of compare all of this information to what we see today in the church, it, it's it's totally and utterly different in, in every way. Um, now, so I, I want to kind of, you know, bring up the, the advocate position. People would instantly then say, well, what do you do with 1 Corinthians 13, right? Um, that's where you got to go because that's where we're taught uh, that it's there's something different. The gift of tongues, maybe there's two kinds of tongues. There's the biblical tongues that we see in the book of Acts, and then we have this kind of spiritual uh, prayer language. Um, you know, it's interesting. I want to read a quote from Wayne Grudem, who is a continuationist, um, because I, I think he's he says it well here. Uh, when he's talking about the gift of tongues. He says, and I quote, it should be said at the outset that the Greek word glossa, translated tongue, is not used to only mean the physical tongue in a person's mouth, but also to mean language. In the New Testament passages where speaking in tongues is discussed, the meaning languages is certainly in view. It's unfortunate, therefore, that the English translation has continued to use the phrase speaking in tongues, which is an expression not otherwise used in ordinary English, which gives the impression of a strange experience, something completely yep. foreign to ordinary human life. But if English translations were to use the expression, quote, speaking in languages, it would not seem nearly as strange and would give the reader a sense much closer yeah. to what first century Greek speaking readers would have heard in the phrase when they read in Acts or Corinthians. So it, here's a continuationist acknowledging that, one, the Greek word uh, means language. It's either talking about your actual tongue or a language, never some kind of mystical prayer experience, never some angelic language. Um, you actually have to change the meaning of the, the word used. And so I, even if we just had that, it would eliminate everything we see in the charismatic church today. Um, but let's talk about Corinthians 13. So someone comes to you, Eki, and they say, yeah, but... 
here, Paul says there's a tongue of angels. He says, um, chapter 13, uh, 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. See, what do you do with that, Eki? Clearly, here's a mention of tongues of men and of angels. So I'm just praying in my heavenly angelic language. Yeah, there's uh, there, there's a few problems with that. Uh, we have we see a series of if statements in verses one, two, and even three. So if I speak the tongues of men and of angels, verse two, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, verse three, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned. Um, he, he gives a number of different if statements. He is not saying that these things are so. And if you look at each of the if statements, what we have here are expressions that we refer to as hyperbole. There are intended exaggerations. Um, he is not saying that he knows all mystery. For instance, verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy, which obviously he does, and he knows all mysteries and all knowledge, which clearly he doesn't. Only God knows all things. If he has all faith so as to remove mountains, uh, we don't know of any incident where Paul was able to actually remove mountains. Verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, well, if he has surrendered his body to be burned, he wouldn't be writing this letter. So all these are intended to be hyperbolic expressions, meaning if I had these abilities to their utmost, but I had not love, then essentially I am nothing. So he's using these hyperbolic expressions, taking things to their extreme in order to make a point that nothing surpasses the importance of love. Now, going back to verse one, if I speak the tongues of angels uh, and of men, does not this acknowledge that there is some special angelic language? Well, uh, maybe, but here's the problem. Every time angels appear in the Bible, guess what? They are speaking human language. Old Testament, New Testament, they can adapt to whatever people they're speaking to. Is there a certain language that they speak to one another? Well, I mean, when you think about the vision that Isaiah had of Yahweh in his temple, the angels are chanting out, holy, holy, holy is the God Almighty. And you see the same thing in the book of Revelation. As they're speaking to one another, they're speaking language, at least that is recorded in something that is understood by people. So even if you want to argue that there is some unique language amongst the angels, it has never been revealed anywhere in Scripture to be anything other than what is understood by men. So this is um, this is a very weak argument, um, and I think it's strengthened when you go to chapter 14 and, and Paul starts to make the point of edification. But yeah, this is you can't make an argument for um, for us speaking angelic language based upon an if statement that is meant to be hyperbolic. Yeah, and that's a really good, it, it's a good point, Eki, and I think it brings to light the importance of understanding the grammar used in the text and what kind, what figures of speech are used. I mean, we, we do this today, right? Someone says, um, hey, are you going to eat pineapple on pizza? And you say, yeah, when pigs fly. Well, I'm not no, suggesting um, that pigs can fly. Neither that <laughs> I mean, neither that pineapple should be put on pizza, nor that pigs can fly. Um, you know, you, you you would take that just to simply say, okay, he's never eating pineapple on pizza. 
Um, actually, occasionally I do because I love my wife and unfortunately she's not been fully pizza sanctified yet. So she still likes pineapple on pizza. But um, so for her sake, I will eat it. But I, but we use that kind of language today, right? When pigs fly. Um, and uh, it, and that's kind of just the type of thing Paul's doing here. And so, again, you, you can't totally ignore the, the grammar. You can't ignore figures of speech. And the point here, um, which accurately most Bibles label it, those labels are not um, inspired, um, but sometimes they're helpful. He's talking about the excellence of love, right? Um, and so that that's the whole point of, of the text. And, and actually, I've never thought about that before, your comment about the angels, how they always speak human languages, but that's true. You never have one instance ever in Scripture where when an, when an angel speaks, they speak anything other than, you know, a human language. Even can, when you go can, can to... I, yeah, jump in there. Yeah, let me, let me add to this also, because when we think about these gifts, I mean, chapter 13 comes right after chapter 12, where Paul starts to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to each person. And when you get to chapter 13, his point is this, everyone doesn't have the same gift. We see that's very obvious at the end of chapter 12. Not everyone's given the same gift. Not everyone fulfills the same role. But when you get to chapter 13 and he talks about the love, the, the point is this, we each have different gifts, but no matter what gifts you've been given, everyone has been given the ability to exercise true love. And, and so love is going to be the more important gift than the unique gift you receive from the Holy Spirit. And that leads right into chapter 14, which is all about if you truly have love, you're going to seek to build up the body to edify the body. So there's a flow here. And when you look at the church in Corinth, I mean, they were marked by extreme division. And and Paul emphasizes over and over again throughout his letters the importance of unity. And yet in chapter one, amongst all the issues that we see throughout all of 1 Corinthians, the very first thing he addresses is how they are divided, and, and he wants them to be united. So this very much, the, the, the theme of unity is running through this entire letter. And a, a lot of times when people start to emphasize their ability to speak tongues that no one understands— um, or, or to prophesy, uh, they're really kind of lifting up and, and building themselves rather than focusing on building the body of Christ through the wisdom, the perfect wisdom given to us by his word. Yeah. And and he goes on in chapter 14 to talk more about this. Um, yeah. it, you know, in fact, in verse, uh, let's see what I've got here, verse five, he says, but I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Now we spoke about the fact that modern to prophesy now would be simply to um, preach the word of God, to speak the word of God. Um, and then he goes on to say, greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he translates. The implication is there that it, is that it's a language that has to be translated. And again, this is where a lot of charismatic doctrines, because they aren't, they don't want to follow what the scripture says, have come up with these unique kind of um, it, well, we're not translating a human language, we're translating a spiritual language, um, an angelic language. But we've already proved that there's no such thing as that, which means that doctrine's also false. It's just inserted in into the text. It's not there to be found. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, so that the church may receive edification. And the reason I bring that up is because um, it, if you get to the stage where you convince someone, okay, well, actually, just the word glossa or glossolalia means a human language. It either means a physical yeah. part of your body or human language. 
And so it, if you really don't need to go any further than that, but if you convince them of that and then they get to the, the passage where Paul's using hyperbole and you say, okay, well, all right, so maybe there he's not saying that, but you know, what about just my own private prayer language? You know, I'm not doing it in a church. We're not being disorderly. We're not using it in a way that seems outside of what we talked about. Well, but then Paul makes it abundantly clear that the gift was for the building up and edification of others. That's why there had to be a translator, right? And when the gift fell on those in the book of Acts, Obviously, there were men who knew the language, and so there were translators because they were speaking in their own language. And so there's no such thing as the the gift that was just for your own private usage. In fact, none of the spiritual gifts are for just your own private usage. They are, in fact, all for the building up and equipping of the body of Christ, even the gifts that still remain today are not just for our own use. So you never find that in scripture. Um, that's just become a way to sort of keep the practice, to justify what we see today rather than uh, to be in line with what scripture says. Yeah, let me let me back up what you just said uh, with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And in verse four, four, five, and six, you basically have the full Trinity there. And then verse seven adds, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So for the common good, in other words, the gifts of the spirit are not for yourself. It's to build up the body of Christ. And so then when you get into chapter 14, you mentioned the word edification, and it shows up over and over again. Verse 3 says, but the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Verse 5, I wish that you all spoke in tongues even more that you would prophesy, and greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. And then down to verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. So in this chapter, the word for edification is actually architectural terminology for building up a building. Uh, so this this is clearly, when you see this word being used over and over again, this is Paul's very clear focus of what the gift should be about. Now, verse 2 says this, For one who speaks in tongues does not speak to men, but to God. And this is where people drive out the prayer language, that, okay, well, this is not to be done in the church assembly, but this is prayer language. And and I would say, okay, that's, you know, if you want to pray in tongues or you think that's beneficial, um, I'm not going to tell you to stop doing that. I'm not going to rebuke you over that. But if you understand tongues, what it is used scripture. And again, you made a good point um, when you said that that we say speak in tongue, and it sounds mystical, but to speak in tongue just meant to speak in a language. Uh, so there was nothing mystical to the original audience when they heard this term. And if you're speaking in a language that you do not understand, the meaning of verse two, the way I interpret it is that you're not speaking to anyone if no one can understand it. You're only speaking to God, and you don't understand it. And then later on, when he says... Um, Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will others, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying, 
for you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. So again, that's the that that's the focus here. That when you speak in tongues, people are to be edified. All right, and then when Paul says though, going back to uh, verse four, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So a combination of verse two and verse four that you're speaking to God, but not men. You're edifying yourself, but not others. So some will say, okay, this is a prayer language. I'm edifying myself, but I'm also speaking to God. And then I would ask you this. If you believe this is truly building up yourself, in what way are you being built up if you do not understand what you are saying? And and secondly, I would point to every single prayer in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, when we're being taught to prayer. You think about the Lord's Prayer. Think about when the disciples asked um, Jesus, hey, we want to pray like John the Baptist. How should we pray? Every example of prayer, every instruction for prayer always involves human language and it engages the mind. If you're speaking in a tongue that you do not understand, guess what? You are not engaging the mind. You do not understand what you are saying. So I would argue that Paul here is not saying that you're truly building up yourself, but rather this is um, a somewhat sarcastic uh, remark to say that really you're just making yourself feel good, but you're not actually growing or being built up uh, according to, to anything of knowledge, which is backed up by the fact that later on, again, he says, if you speak in a way that no one else understands... The other person is not edified, and that's why he says in verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And prayer, I tell you, prayer is such a blessed activity. It's such a blessed time of communion, but it's also a time that in our prayer, we express to God what it is we are truly thankful for, what it is that we give praise for. We we intercede and, and lift up our supplications, not only for ourselves, but for the saints. We confess our sins. All of that requires an engagement of the mind, and all of that glorifies God. But if we're just seeking to speak in tongue, none of that is happening. Yeah, and you can't isolate one verse from the rest of the text teaching. I mean, Paul makes it clear there should always be a translation. So that eliminates a private prayer language. You, you can't isolate that from, you know, it's, it's, it's in the same teaching. Um, and again, every time the word you, every time you see the word tongue, you need to understand that it means language, human language. So if you can speak in another human language, I mean, it would be like, yeah, okay. If you're praying in the church um, and you know, you, you're bilingual and you're praying in Russian out loud, um, but no one else speaks Russian. Now, that's not a supernatural gift, um, but it's an example of what really kind of would have happened. You're not being useful to anyone. You know, you're praying, yeah. um, but it's not it, it's not beneficial to the body of Christ. Now, in this case, he's speaking of the actual gift. Um, which still would have been a human language. It just would have been miraculously being spoken by someone who's not learned that language previously. So you can't um, just pull out one text and isolate it from all the other commands and expectations. You know, and then Paul, I mean, as you say, in verse 19, I mean, he just demolishes the idea that it's even in any way more spiritual or preferential or better just to pray in any other language than the language that's common with your mind. Right. Um, and, and so he makes that super clear. And so if you're in a church that's practicing something contrary to this, whatever is happening, 
it's not biblical and it's actually contrary um, to Paul's teaching. And I would argue that it, it's actually making a mockery, maybe unintentionally so, but it's mocking the true gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, private prayer language, I think we just have to be honest, it's just babble. What we see today is not authentic, it's just babble. And I know that's hard for some guys to hear because it sounds harsh, um, but it, you know, I remember when I first was taught how to speak in tongues. And this is interesting because everyone that claims to speak in tongues today is taught how to do it. I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was now, uh, you know, well, well over 10 years, maybe, maybe close to 15. Um, I was at a Kenneth Copeland meeting. I never heard of this guy before, you know, brand new baby Christian. I'm just going everywhere. People are saying, hey, God's here and we'll learn and all that kind of thing. And I, I mean, I'll never forget that. I don't remember where we were, but there were a ton of people there. And at the end of the service, you know, Kenneth Copeland made this big thing about if you wanted to receive the gift of uh, the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues to go in this little room. And I'm a young Christian, so I want whatever God has for me. Um, you, you know, I don't know, but if it's from God, I want it. So we go in this little room and I don't know, there's maybe maybe 200, 150 people in there. It, it was a pretty large room with a lot of people. And you had these ushers standing up front and they're saying, um, okay, now we're going to pray that you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And um, after we pray, just uh, open your mouths and just let whatever, um, whatever sounds come out. And so they pray. And of course, after they pray, they're, you know, babbling. And I'm going to use that term because that is honestly what it is. Um, they're they're babbling to encourage other people to do it. And so, you know, you have the the more easily influenceable people who go first. And so they're just mimicking. Um, and, and it's just it, it's just uttering nonsensical sounds. And so there's a bunch of people still not doing it. So they pray again, because obviously the first prayer, you didn't get the Holy Spirit. So they pray again. And uh, they're encouraging people, you know, don't be embarrassed. Uh, don't be reserved. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. Um, but you have to open your mouth and make sounds. And so, you know, they this goes on for some time. And time goes on and on and on. And I, I'm I'm super uncomfortable, super uncomfortable. One of the last people that do anything. And then it, eventually I give in. And I remember the peer pressure was so strong. There were multiple people all around me with hands on me. I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know what's going on, but it's weird and it's it's a little unnerving. And so eventually I, I give in and I just start babbling. I know I'm babbling. I know what I'm saying. I'm making up, right? I can already speak a foreign language. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been through high school and uh, four years of Spanish, so it's not a big deal to speak a foreign language. And so I just start making things up. And of course, everyone's, you know, finally excited that this small group of us that were left are speaking in tongues. I can still do it today. Um, it's not tongues, biblical tongues. It's just making it up. In fact, I'll do it right now. And that's it. I just made all of that up. It is just words with a little hint of Spanish in it because I, you know, I used to be able to speak Spanish. Um, it's just gibberish. 
And I think a lot of people who, you know, start speaking in tongues have some kind of similar experience. Maybe it's not as much peer pressure, but they see everyone else doing it. And maybe they're just ignorant like I was. And I think, man, if, but if this is God, then, you know, I've, you know, I don't want to hold, I don't, I don't want to keep God from working in my life. But when you go to scripture, you have to come to the place where you love the word and the truth more than your experiences and maybe even what you've been doing and, and just, you know, say, you know what? Yeah, I've been making it up. It's what I was taught. And so I did it um, well-intentioned. I, I did it because I thought that's how the Holy Spirit was working, um, but I see in Scripture that that's not true. And so, just stop because it's you know it's 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 not legitimate, and it diminishes the real gift. I think. Yeah, every example that I have seen and heard of from the charismatic or Pentecostal circles of speaking in tongues. The point that we're, we're making is that every example I've seen or heard, and I think this is the same for you, Nathaniel, what you're describing, has not been actual human language. The, the pattern that we see in scripture is human language, and every example that we've seen from these kinds of circles has always been not human language, but what they claim to be angelic language. The times that I've heard actual tongues being brought to people were in actual situations that very much uh, match the biblical pattern. For instance, I have heard stories of missionaries who have been out in the mission field, uh, confronted uh, with uh, with the natives, but unable to speak the language. They were suddenly able to speak a language they could not speak before, and the natives understood it. They're essentially sharing the, the gospel in that tongue. Now, is that the gift of tongues? Well, I would argue not, because while it was certainly a miracle of God, um, in each of those cases that I've heard, the missionary could not reproduce that at a later time. So the gift is something that you can reproduce. It's an actual language. And in those cases, those missionaries, as far as I knew, were not Pentecostal or charismatic. So we're not saying, again, this goes back to an earlier point that we're making, that we have made, that we're not saying that God cannot perform miracles, cannot bring about uh, these, these supernatural um, experiences uh, at, at his choosing. But when he does it, he does it by his will, and he does it according to his pattern. And again, according to those missionaries, it wasn't angelic language, but it was actual language that the natives were able to understand. I think what's helpful also is when we continue on in verse 20, chapter 14, verse 20 talks says this, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. And verse 21, he says something very interesting. In the law it is written... By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That is referencing back to the Old Testament, and that is a judgment against the Israelites, saying that I am going to use people that are outside of Israel to speak strange tongues to the Israelites so that they will not understand. So verse 22, he then goes on to say, so then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but those who believe. So, so the so tongues and prophecy, both what we refer to as sign gifts, and, and we talk about we have talked before about the sign gifts of the apostle. Um, prophets obviously have 
this sign gift of prophecy at that time, but they are a sign. A sign points to something. And verse 23, it says, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Now, what's the point of that? Well, when the church gathers together, we are there for fellow believers. The church service and this gets confused today because of pragmatism and people trying to become seeker sensitive in their church services to cater it towards unbelievers, but it's not to be catered towards unbelievers. It is for the edification of believers. And if unbelievers come in and see believers speaking to each other in language that no other believers understand, they're going to think you're crazy. That's the point of verse 22. The gift of tongues was used, and I would say it was used to help bring the gospel to new people. And verse 23, uh, verse 24 says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to give an account by all. Now, when does that happen? Well, that happens when the word of God is proclaimed. The word of God that even an unbeliever can hear and understand is uh, that is actually intended to edify the church, but can be understood by the unbeliever. Verse 25, the secret of his heart are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And that happens. So many unbelievers, they'll come to a church service, and as they're hearing the word of God being proclaimed, the word of God is convicting their heart, just as Jesus said it would do. Um, the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We know the word of God is the ministry of the Spirit given through men. So all of that happens together as a sign um, to believers, but can help bring unbelievers to conviction. Um, the gift of tongues only has that effect if it's an actual language and it is actually translated. Once it is translated, it brings about the same value that that prophecy brings. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Paul takes the time to say this is not what should be happening in a church service as a whole. Now, it, I mean, and if you compare that with what we see today, um, it, it's just in every way um, different than the biblical account. But even let's just keep going, because if you think about what you find in churches today, you know, the next portion is Paul is making the point of um, what we do in worship being orderly. Verse 26, he says, what is the outcome then, brothers? When you assemble, so this is the gathering, the assembly, each yeah. one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, a language, has a translation. Let all things be done for edification. So again, there's no self-exercising of gifts here. And then in verse yeah. 27, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue. Now, I, I say it like that because all scripture is inspired by God. If the expectation was that this would happen every time, he wouldn't say if, he would say when. He wouldn't use the word if he said, but he says, if anyone speaks in the tongue, it should be by two or three at most and each in turn and one must translate. Um, yeah. and, and so even when the gift was active, there was never a time where what we see today would have been acceptable. You walk into a room and a whole bunch of people are, you know, um, spouting out whatever gibberish is what it is today. But um, it, even then, the expectation was that even that was done in an extraordinarily orderly fashion. So you never would have had a gathering where all sorts of people were just bursting out in unknown languages. 
where there was no translation, where it was hectic and chaotic. Um, even then, Paul says two or three at the most, and then there has mm-hmm. to be a translator. And so, yep. again, if you go to Scripture and let the Scriptures define the gifts and let the Scriptures set the context, let the Scriptures set the parameters for the usage of the gift, you, you just have to come to the conclusion that nothing of what we see today fits in, in, in with what we see in Scripture. And then it's interesting because th- this is the first place we start. Uh, but actually, let me go back to something you said, because it's anecdotal to me. Um, and I think the point needs to be made. I thought you said it well when you said there have been some accounts of missionaries you've heard that, you know, could they, they spoke, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a language, you know, once or twice or something miraculously, they couldn't reduplicate it. That that was even that was not the gift of tongues but would have been right. a, a miracle, right? That would have been by definition a miracle, right? Not duplicatable, something that happens in a u- unique situation. By the way, uh, y- y- miracles, they don't happen a lot again, right? It's unique. So we shouldn't be hearing of all these stories all the time of this happening. That's not mm-hmm. by nev- definition miracles. But when you tell that story, what I can't do is take something that's anecdotal to me and make a doctrine out of it, right? right? And so I have to basically, you know, I know you, I trust you. I have to just take that and put it on the shelf and say, okay, well, I mean, for one, um, it's not the gift of tongues. And so um, whether or not the incident actually happened, I have to say, I don't know. Could God yeah. do that? Yes, because it's not the gift, it's a miracle. So I just put it on my possibility shelf, but I'm not going to make any kind of doctrine out of that. I'm not going to, I'm probably not even going to repeat it as something that's being, that's, that's true because I don't know. Um, it, it's unusual. I have no evidence for it. And I can, I can do that and simultaneously in faith say, praise God if he did it. Um, yeah. if, if he used a miracle to, um, I, I know the parameters in which he said, if, if that happened, then it would have been centered around, uh, bringing unbelievers to himself in some way or somehow. Um, but I can't form a doctrine around it. And so a lot of what we have today with the miraculous, uh, sign gifts are anecdotal evidences, right? It's just someone claiming that something happened. So, you know, Francis Chan, uh, is a good example of this kind of nonsense. I mean, he's just gone totally off the rails. But he claims that he was in some small village in a, a, over in Asia. I don't remember where now. Um, uh, and that everyone, okay, yeah, Myanmar, that's right. And everyone he touched got healed. Well, I think he's lying, um, just based on scripture. But there's no proof. There's no evidence. It's anecdotal. Um, and and so people can't like. Oftentimes, what happens in the charismatic churches, they'll say. Oh, we'll see. He claimed that it happened. So obviously it's still normative for today. No, I wasn't there. I don't know if that happened or not. It doesn't fall in line with scripture. Even his account of what happened in that time period doesn't fall into how we saw those gifts working in scripture. And so there's just enough red flags. And so I think we have to be careful repeating other people's stories. So, you know, I trust you and you have, you know, if you had a missionary that you trust that, 
you know, says something miraculous happened. I can praise God with you. I'm just not going to hold that up as, you know, a matter of fact thing. Um, and, and I think we well, have and, to remember. Yeah. And, and you make a good point. We're not going to make a doctrine out of anecdotes. And in fact, those kinds of anecdotes, and I just heard it from a third party source. Um, so I've, I've heard that from uh, a number of different third party sources of different missionaries who were able to do that. But all of them agree to the same thing that they weren't able to reproduce it. It was a one time thing. And you're right. We weren't there. We don't know if it exactly happened. But if it did happen, it does actually match the pattern of what we would look yeah. for, that it was actual language and was connected to bringing the gospel to unbelievers. That's exactly what we see here in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, if there's any kind of doctrine we're going to make out of these kinds of miracle anecdotes, it's this. God is the one who brings miracles, period. Um, we, we don't reproduce miracles. God is the one that brings those miracles, and the way they've been described, it's simply miracles, and God is able to do that. You know, yeah. the other thing, too, as I'm looking at this, <clears throat> talking about at least two or three must uh, interpret or, or translate. I think the, the NSB says interpret. Um, I'm assuming the LSB says translate. I think translate is a better translation. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, at least two, at most, I'm sorry, two or three, and, and then you, one must interpret. And verse 28 says, if there is no interpreter or translator, he must keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. And people will latch on to that last part. Okay, there it is. Let him speak to himself and to God. Well, that is saying if someone actually has something to say in a language that is not his own, um, but there is no interpreter, then he has no other choice but to just say it to himself. He, th yeah. This requires the person who speaks in a language, in a different language, to actually be thoughtful about whether there's truly a translator in his presence or not. So it has to be done in an orderly fashion. And then even following up on that, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So the things that you say need to be held up to the scrutiny of those who are truly prophets. And then Paul does something just masterful, just absolutely masterful at the end of all this, because verse 32, he says, the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. So in other words, if you are truly a prophet and you say something, another prophet should be able to validate it. But at the very end, um, he, he says this, verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet, because anyone can claim to be a prophet, but Paul says this, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Mm -hmm. This was a masterful way to complete all of this, because while Paul cannot validate anyone who calls himself a prophet, he knows this, that they need to be able to validate exactly what he teaches here in chapter 14. So whether you have true gifts going on or whether you got a bunch of people acting like they have gifts, but they're they're frauds, what Paul can do here is to make sure, one, that this is done in order, and two, that the true prophets can actually weigh in on what's actually being said. Yeah, absolutely. And then he ends by repeating, you know, before you get into chapter 15 in verse 40, again, uh, that all things have to be done properly and in an orderly manner. So this idea that the Holy Spirit is only moving if the church service is chaotic and, you know, out of order. I, I mean, it's it's in every way antithetical to right. the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul, who, again, has just said, right, um, that if you think you're prophet or spiritual, you, you, you have to agree with what he's saying as the Lord's commandment. Um, it, you think of like this so-called holy laughter movement. I was reading some things about that. Um, 
the, what's his name, Brown, Howard Brown, and some other guys. Um, apparently, that's getting started up again. And when you look at those church services, they are they are absolutely chaotic, chaotic and disorderly. And so you can instantly and rightfully judge whatever is going on there is counter to what Scripture commands. Um, and, and we're right to do that because we have clear Scripture on that. Now, you know, Eki, what's interesting, too, I think, I mean, we, we've appealed to Scripture first because that's our primary authority. But as yeah. you see, the books in the Bible go from um, the miraculous. And I think people forget, too, this was a unique time period in, in church history, yeah. right? I mean, Christ only came once as the Messiah. Uh, he was only crucified once. He was only resurrected once. And the institute, the, the institution, uh, instituting of the church, the New Testament church, was a one-time, one-time period ordeal. And from there, the church is meant to grow into maturity. And so we have lots of things going on that's never to be reduplicated uh, because they're unique circumstances. Um, until the return of Christ, no one's going to walk with Jesus again like he did with the disciples. You know, he came in flesh. So all of that was very unique. And so I think sometimes we forget that um, there, uh, you know, really the, the book of Acts rightly understood to be the acts of the apostles, um, right. not the acts of, you know, perpetual ev everyday Christians. It's not something we're supposed to be duplicating. And so not the idea of let's go back to Acts, let's go back to the church of Acts is really a, an idea that comes out of biblical ignorance. Um, you can't reduplicate what happened in Acts, nor should we want to, uh, because you have to undo what the apostles did um, and, and want to tear down the foundation that was laid and restart it. And so it doesn't make sense to, to, to go in that direction. But then we have church history. After you go to Scripture, yeah. you know, after, I don't know, certainly after 300s, um, you, you have, and I think if I recall really after about 100 AD, you just don't see this anymore. The early church fathers, many, many of them acknowledged that the gifts were only and always a foreign language. Um, you've got Chrysostom, you know, from three, 300 into 400, somewhere in there, I think you mid 300s. Um, if you read his homilies in first, first Corinthians, I think it is. Um, he talks about uh, the fact that the, the gift of tongues was an actual language. Um, Gregory of uh, Nazianzus, who was before Chrysostom, also, in fact, I have a quote from him, um, his uh, oration on Pentecost. He says this, and I quote, They spoke with foreign tongues and not those of their native land. And the wonder was great, a language spoken by those who had not learned it. And the sign is to them that believe not and not to them that believe that it may be an accusation of the unbelievers as it is written with other tongues and other lips. I will speak unto this people and not even so that they will listen to me, says the Lord. I mean, so and he's in the early 300s and you can just kind of go through church history. Augustine's another one. Um, you get into the reformers as well. John Calvin. Certainly Spurgeon had very, um, I mean, he's, he's not really a reformer, but more into modern day. 
but you have the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, B.B. Uh, Warfield. Yeah. You know, all of these guys understood that the gift was always a, a known human language. And then you come into the 1900s, and I actually wrote a paper on on this um, last semester in, in class about uh, how charismatic doctrine affects modern-day preaching. And there was a big emphasis on Charles Parham. Um, because until the 1900s, um, this idea of ecstatic speech, you know, babbling, uh, wasn't even around. It, it really kind of came up through that. And it's interesting because he's known as, Parham's known as the, the father of Pentecostalism. At the beginning, he also only believed that the gift of tongues was uh, a known language, right? And so if you just read his account, you'll find out that uh, there was a lady, and I can't remember her name now, um, who claimed to be able to speak uh, Chinese. And uh, Osman, Osman um, was her last name, Agnes Osman, maybe? Uh, don't quote me on that. But we actually have photographs but supposedly she also wrote in Chinese. Oh, and you, I remember you can, this. Yeah, yeah. You can look this up. I have copies of it on my yep, on my desktop. Yep. Um, and when you look at it now, it it's it's exactly it reflects exactly what the gift of tongues she claimed to be was because it's just chicken scratch, you know. Um, and so Aram, they sent all these missionaries overseas, and they got there and they discovered that no one could understand what they were saying. And so when they came back now, and this is, this is fascinating because this is the really beginning of what we see today as, as modern day tongue speaking. They had two options. Option one was to say, okay, um, we didn't get the gift of tongues. We thought it was that, but it's not. That was option one. Option two was to lie and to come up with a doctrine that fit the experience so that they wouldn't look foolish. And that's actually what they did. And so it developed from there into a so-called spiritual language, um, because no one can really disprove that except if you go back to Scripture. And so that's really where what we see today comes from. And there were a bunch of write-ups in newspapers. Uh, by the way, uh, Parham you know, being the father of Pentecostalism and all this charismatic doctrine, as you might expect, as is common today, rife with infidelity. And he was arrested for sodomy. You can find those newspaper mm -hmm. clippings. They're available publicly. Um, just the whole movement, even from the beginning, uh, is a twisting of scripture filled with guys who claim to be prophets, but they don't have uh, integrity in their character. They don't have the support of scripture on their side. And so that's kind of the beginning of what we have today. So from scripture all the way up through church history, even up to the guy who sort of, um, you know, started the modern Pentecostal movement at the beginning, knew and believed that the gift of tongues was an actual human language spoken by someone who had not learned it previously. And it was only after they went overseas and failed um, that it got twisted into a lot of what we see today. So just some interesting history uh, throughout there. Yeah, and if we go back to the biblical history, all the way back to the book of Acts, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. tongues is really only mentioned on three occasions. And one is on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, 
And then in Acts chapter 10, you see it again with the household of Cornelius. Now, why were they speaking in tongues? Well, you had Peter, the same person who spoke on the day of Pentecost, now going to a Gentile home, sharing the same truth with Cornelius. And the speaking of tongues was an affirmation. The gospel had now gone outside of the nation of Israel to Gentiles, just as Jesus Christ had prophesied it would. And then in Acts chapter 16, you have uh, 16 or 19. Let me double check this. It's actually 19. Acts chapter 19, you have the speaking of tongues showing up again, this time with the disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, they come across Paul, and Paul finds out, asks them if they have received the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And I take this to mean that they actually didn't know about Jesus Christ himself. And so in chapter 19, verse 5, then they, sorry, verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the water of baptism, repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. So in verse 4, I believe what we have is Paul sharing the good news of salvation with the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, the disciples of John the Baptist were simply taught about the uh, the baptism of repentance and to be prepared for the coming of the one who is the Lord, but they had not seen who that Lord is. And so verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So that's it. Those are the three instances. You had the initial instance on the day of Pentecost with Jews. You had another instance in Acts chapter 10, which helps signify to both Peter as well as those who were with him that the work of salvation had not now reached the Gentiles. And you have Acts chapter 19 to the uh, disciples, to, to these disciples of John the Baptist who had not learned yet about Jesus Christ, which if you ask me, um, what I would tell you is that I think this is God's way of affirming the ministry of John the Baptist, that they indeed were taught, taught truthfully, and when they received the news of Jesus Christ, they did not reject as most of uh, most others did, especially those amongst the, the nation of Israel. And so that's it. And and you look throughout church history, have used as you have described, and then in the 1900s, you have three waves, starting the 1900s, early 1900s, and then the 1960s, again in the 1980s. And when you look at the fruit that has come out of this movement— the fruit has not been one that has held to the Word of God as being the sufficient Word of God. And again, we've mentioned these verses before, but uh, first, Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Verse 17 says it is able to make the man of God complete, equipped for every good work. What is that every good work? Well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 talks about how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Verse 10 says that we are saved for good works, which God has prepared for us beforehand. So you are saved to do good works um, that God has prepared for you, and your preparation for those good works comes from nothing other than Scripture itself, which is able to make you complete, equipped for every good work. So just those verses by themselves— show us that the scriptures are fully sufficient for what we need. So what is it that we need tongues or prophecy for above and beyond that? Well, I would argue that we don't. Now, does that mean God couldn't work in those ways? And this is where we would disagree a little bit, but you know, I might be, a, <clears throat> as I've said, a practical cessationist where I say, could God possibly work in these ways? Possibly, but I would say if it does, if he does, then I want to see it match the pattern of scripture. And we both can agree that that has not been the case. And so even if prophecy were to be made today, I would say that 
that prophecy better just be an affirmation of what's already in the Bible. It can be confirmed by the Bible. It's not something that's completely outside the Bible. And unfortunately, a lot of people who are claiming to have the gift of prophecy, and you look at the New Apostolic Reformation movement, uh, a lot of them are just speaking things that have nothing to do with Scripture. They're being followed by people that really have very little interest in reading Scripture from what I've seen. And just as um, I want to say it was uh, John MacArthur that may have said this, may have been someone else, but why would God reveal to you new revelation when you have shown no interest in understanding the revelation that has already been revealed? Yeah. Yeah, and I think you make a, make a good point. Um, and yeah, we we verge a little bit, but maybe some of that's just semantics. Um, I, you know, I still believe God can do miraculous things. And it, they could be an instance of many of these things. Um, but I think you made an interesting comment when you said, even if there was a prophecy today, um, it, it wouldn't be something new or outside of Scripture. And so why would we need it? And so, I, I mean, I think that would be what I was what I would point to. Um, if yeah. it's not needed, then it's irrelevant. Um, and if the canon is closed, then God's not giving new revelation. And so if there was a prophet or a prophecy um, that was new revelation, then we would actually need to add that to the Bible. So unless God is still adding to the Bible, there's never going, there's not going to be a, 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 a you know, a prophet that's coming up. Um and and I think that's not to be confused with the fact that the Holy Spirit does indeed bring Scripture to mind, put on our hearts for people. Um, and so I I do want to 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 be careful that you know we understand that the, that this is how the Holy Spirit works. And so I may be with someone and they're going through a hard time, and a, a Scripture comes to mind that's just absolutely applicable to their life and circumstance. I'm going to trust that that's the Holy Spirit working in me on 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 their behalf. I mean, that's part of what the Holy Spirit does. Um, now, he's not going to bring to mind Scripture. I don't know, um, right? Um, yeah. that, that's not common. But, you know, and so we do, but that's not the same as prophesying, right? In, in some sense, um, when we've talked about, you know, prophesying today would be just simply preaching the word of God, reading the word of God. Um, but that's not a prophecy in the biblical sense, right? That's just uh, the Holy Spirit working in believers, bringing scripture to mind in applicable times. And that's good. And that's right. And I think we should acknowledge the Holy Spirit does that. But don't call that prophecy because that's not biblical prophecy. And likewise, you know, what we see today, don't call it tongues. And I would just encourage you. Um, if, if, you know, if you were taught incorrectly, look, I, I think I wish someone would have come to me, showed me the scriptures and said, look, you don't need to be embarrassed. You, you were misled. Um, you know, and I would tell you the same thing, you know, you don't need to be embarrassed if you've been making up, you know, uh, speech because that's what you were taught, but stop doing it. Now that you know what the truth is, don't continue, don't make a mockery out of the true gift by falsifying the gift. Now that you have the knowledge, you're responsible um, to act faithfully and with integrity. And so maybe you didn't know the truth of what tongues were prior to this. And now that you do, and I would say now would be the time to draw the line in the sand and say, you know what, now that I know what the gift is, I'm not going to do this anymore because I want to yeah. honor the biblical gift. Um, and I want to walk in integrity 
and I want to follow the truth of Scripture. And so, yeah, I don't think anyone needs to be embarrassed by it um, if they're just coming to understand this. I think this is God's grace. Um, I, I have no doubt someone will listen to this podcast, and this will be God's grace in their life to just help them be a little more biblical, help honor the true gifts. Um, I mean, I read these uh, miraculous sign gifts, and I, I think how wonderful and gracious and amazing God was um, and how just unique um, he operated in this time of history to prove, to legitimize his apostles and his gospel, so much so that it went all over the world. It's unstoppable. Why would we want to do anything that diminishes just how incredible the real gifts were? And I think that's the mindset, the mentality that we that we want. Any any last thoughts as we wrap up today? Yeah, as we always strive to be, we just want to obey the scriptures, understand the scriptures, obey the scriptures, apply the scriptures, and really be able to discern with the scriptures. And what we're both sharing is that according to the discernment that we see from the wisdom of the scriptures, we we just cannot affirm uh, much, uh, well, pretty much every example that we have heard. Uh, of this gift today. And if you study the scriptures and live your life according to the scriptures, I think you will find that you do not need uh, this additional gift that cannot be verified and cannot be understood, but rather glorify God with what you do know, because it's with our mind that we engage the spiritual war around us. It is with our mind that we uh, we learn the scriptures, we apply the scriptures to our minds and our heart that's talking about the inner man. And when we go to God, in prayer, we pray with with language that we understand in order to give glory to God from our heart and from our mind. And that is the testimony that we have before God, and that is the testimony we have before the world. And it all starts with Scripture through the illumination of the Spirit made possible by the sacrifice that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, made on the cross according to the will of God the Father. Amen. I just remember even Paul said, Praying in a language he knew with his mind was worth far more. And so yep. I hope this episode's been helpful to you guys. We would love to hear your comments. I'd love to get an email from you. Tell us how the Lord has you know, used the information in your life. We'd be certainly blessed to celebrate with you. You can find all that information in the show notes. Don't forget we have a YouTube channel. Go there, subscribe, share an episode that's been helpful to you. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.